Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 98 of Hack to Start. This episode features Erica Brescia, the co-founder and COO of Bitnami. Tyler and I want to invite Erica onto the show to share her story as an entrepreneur and what it's been like building Bitnami. With over 1 million apps deployed per month, Bitnavi makes it incredibly easy to deploy apps with native installers as virtual machines or in the cloud. Erica has led operations for Bitnavi since they started. She's also been responsible for all their partnerships with big brands like Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Platform, and VMware. She also leads sales, which has enabled them to remain mostly bootstrapped all these years. Erica joins us to share her story, how she got into tech and startups, what it's like building Bitnami and some of the challenges they had to overcome, what it's like going through Y Combinator with a more established company, and much more. It's an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Erica. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We're so excited to uh, also have you on and, and share all the amazing stuff that you're doing with Bitnami. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, like where you're from and what you studied? Sure. So my name is Erica Brescia. I grew up in the East Bay in Northern California in a town called Danville. Um, I went to USC for school and I studied investment finance. I actually originally went for their entrepreneurship program, but I wasn't quite sure what kind of company I wanted to start yet. So I ended up focusing on finance. Um, But I have to say, I think I've learned most of, of what I use today in the school of hard knocks, just getting out there and doing things. Yes, that's awesome. So how did that actually, you know, transition into a passion for entrepreneurship? And how did you first get into the tech industry? You know, I think it started at a very early age for me. Uh, My father is an entrepreneur, although not in the tech space, um, in the the brick and mortar space. He has a contracting company that puts glass and aluminum systems in commercial buildings. And um, it was a really tiny company, a handful of people when uh, he took it over when I was about a year old. And so I basically grew up watching him build that company into a leader in the space and one of the top few glazing companies uh, in the country. So, you know, I used to go into work with him. I remember even, you know, as a freshman or sophomore in high school, he was already teaching me about different corporate entities and, um, you know, the the benefits of different structures um, and kind of coaching me on on how to get things done and talk to me a lot about his business dealings. And, you know, I was really inspired watching him build something from nothing and also seeing the impact that he could have on people's lives by building out a great team and helping those people be successful. Um, It was a really exciting thing to watch. And I pretty much knew, you know, from a very early age that I wanted to do the same thing. That's such an amazing story. So from that experience, you started your own company called BitRock. So what is BitRock and what motivated you to start it? 
So um, Bitrock develops installation and packaging tools and really is the corporate entity that is Bitnami. So um, we don't do a great job of clarifying that right now out on the interwebs, but Bitrock and Bitnami are actually the same business. Um, Bitnami is a brand of Bitrocks. And when we got started, Daniel, who's my co-founder, was actually already working on some of the code. Um, the idea was that we were going to create an installation tool that would allow us to bootstrap the company to execute on a much grander vision. Of course, it took us a lot longer to build and get that tool to market than we initially planned, um, but it's become really the foundation of everything that we do at Bitnami. You know, without getting too much into the technical details, if you think about what an installation tool really is, it's kind of a configuration engine. And configuration and packaging is at the heart of everything that we do today at Bitnami. He started working on that tool first because he had run into problems with a lot of other existing tools and thought he could do better. And, you know, we joke because he thought he could develop something better in a few months. And of course, it took like a year to launch the first version, as typically happens. Um, but that really set the stage for everything, everything that was to come after that. So, you know, it started as him scratching an itch and trying to, to fix a problem to bring some cash into the company to execute on a much larger vision. And we're kind of coming full circle around to that vision today. I remember using Benami for the first time I mean, and I absolutely loved it. It was actually the tool I used to help create the Hack to Start website for oh, running awesome. yeah, for running Ghost uh, locally. So it was amazing. And we'll, we'll dive a little bit deeper further in the episode. But going back to Bitrock, what were some of the challenges you had to overcome launching this type of business at the time? Well, there were quite a few. I mean, we actually started working on that first product uh, in Spain. So my co-founder is Spanish, and he had worked out in Silicon Valley for a number of years and decided to go back to Spain to work on the code. He could save some money. It was going to be less expensive uh, to do it there. And then we were introduced by a mutual friend. And there's a much longer story there, but I actually only went to help out for a couple weeks in between jobs and then ended up moving to Spain and, and helping him get the company off the ground. There were a lot of advantages from a cost perspective and a focus perspective to being in Spain. You know, it's easy to get distracted with all the happenings in Silicon Valley. Um, but at the same time, we didn't realize how much of a perception issue there would be around the company being, you know, Spanish versus a truly a U.S. company, even though we were a U.S. company, even at that time with like a Spanish subsidiary. So kind of being isolated in Spain, we thought would have more advantages that it ended up having. The company really hit a pretty big inflection point when we set up office and started building out the team over here in San Francisco. So I'd say that was one challenge. The other one was, you know, I'm not an engineer and we we work on very, very technical problems. And so there was a pretty steep learning curve for me just to get my head around you know, the software business as a whole, and then open source, which we do a lot of work with, and the implications of various open source licensing types. There was a lot of that. And then other issues like intercompany transfer pricing and things that you have to deal with when you have a, you know, multinational company. So um, there were a lot of, of good lessons that I learned at, at that point in time. And I honestly read voraciously just everything that I could get my hands on to try and get my head around the industry and the business models and how we should think about things like pricing and sales and everything else. Maybe you could dive in a little bit more into into or elaborate, I guess, on on what it was like having a Spanish subsidiary and, and sort of the perception from the U.S. of not being a quote unquote, you know, American company. What What was that like? 
Sure. I think we figured because I'm obviously American and I grew up in the Bay Area and we had a U.S. address here and we were technically an American company that people wouldn't really care if the development was happening in Spain. But when we went to sign bigger, what were essentially professional services contracts, we did find that people thought of us as, you know, quote unquote, the Spanish company. And that seemed to make people a little bit more hesitant about doing business with us. I also think, and you know, I'm sure you've picked up on this and other entrepreneurs you've spoken with have too, but there's something to be said for just being physically present here, being able to head off to a meeting at a moment's notice, um, having, you know, we now have, I think, a pretty beautiful and fantastic office right in the heart of Soma. And it just changes people's perceptions of how serious you are as a company, um, when you have that physical presence and people can come in and meet with you and they know you're in the same time zone and you have a 415 area code and everything else, you know, it was very subtle and we didn't find out until several years after we had actually started, you know, really making the move over here, um, which was quite a long time ago now. But we didn't notice until after the fact that people had really thought of us as kind of this little Spanish company and they might not have taken us quite as seriously as they would have if we were based here in San Francisco the whole time. That, that's a really cool kind of insight and, and story to share. So earlier you mentioned that, uh, you know, BitRock sort of created the vision for Bitnami as a, as a secondary brand, which you guys ended up launching in 2011. So what was it like kind of building that company within a company for you guys? It was very, it was a gradual process, right? So what happened was, you know, we started out with this installation tool, Install Builder, and then um, we got into the business of basically building what we call stacks, similar to the Bitnami stacks that we have today for a bunch of software companies, um, primarily server software companies. So this was back when companies like MySQL and SugarCRM and Alfresco and Jaspersoft and Groundwork and Penaho were all getting off the ground. And they had business applications that were available as open source, um, but they were really difficult for people to get installed. And we had pretty specialized knowledge about how to use our own packaging tools to kind of put together the whole software stack in a clickable installer that gave people an experience similar to what they were used to with desktop software. So we found that we could vastly um, improve their adoption numbers, drive trials um, or evals of their software by making the barrier to getting it up and running so much lower. And that's what really led us to create Bitnami. Um, we saw the impact that we were having on those businesses and we thought, that it would make sense to take it a step further and start packaging more and more applications and delivering those directly to end users. We started with a bunch of infrastructure pieces like LAMP, for example, um, and packaging up those environments so developers could easily get it, you know, a LAMP or a, a Rails development environment set up on their machine in, in just a few clicks. And so they could get a consistent experience on the entire team's laptops, for example, or have the same, the same package on their laptop as they would have on their production server. So that's when we started packaging up things and putting them out there under Bitnami, which was originally just bitnami.org. And it was kind of a side project, but we saw adoption just start to skyrocket. And in particular, I think the advent of the cloud really helped drive a lot of that growth because, you know, we were one of the first, if not the first companies to start packaging up applications as AMIs for Amazon. Um, when Amazon Web Services was kind of just coming on the scene 
And that kind of pulled us into becoming what we are now, which is essentially the top provider of packaged apps on all the major cloud platforms, as well as for local and virtual deployment. So, you know, it was kind of slow going for for quite a while as we figured out what the market needed and where the opportunities were. Um, we spent a lot of time in, you know, what most people would call a, a customer development process, like really understanding where things were going and building out our strategy around that. And we really um, hit another inflection point around, I'd say, 2013 when we went through Y Combinator. Um, the company has been growing pretty significantly since then. So, you know, I think when we went through Y Combinator in 2013, we were about 15 or so people, maybe 20. And I think our latest headcount is about 67. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. A lot of fun and a lot of activity. Yeah, for sure. And so actually, that, that's a great transition that, you know, you guys went to YC through the winter of 2013. So what was that, you know, entire application process and, and just going through the accelerator like for you and, and your team at that time? Yeah, it was interesting. So my my co-founder, Daniel, his wife had actually been through Y Combinator, um, which is what convinced us to go through it. We were a bit further along, you know, we were 12 or 15 people when we went through, which is uncommon. Most of the YC teams are a little bit smaller and we were already profitable and had a fairly significant amount of revenue coming into the company. Um, but we knew we really were ready to start scaling and building out a much larger and, and more meaningful business. And we felt like Y Combinator could really help us um, accelerate our growth. And it did. Um, we spent a lot of time talking to other YC founders before applying just to make sure that you know, it was the right move for us because, you know, you do give up a chunk of equity and it's a lot of time and we wanted to make sure that the trade-offs were going to be worth it. And we literally could not find a single person that went through Y Combinator that, that wouldn't highly recommend it to anyone else. And I, and I certainly consider myself in that camp. But it wasn't this decision that we took lightly. Um, getting a little bit personal, I had had a baby two weeks before the applications uh, or the interview, actually. So um, we were finalizing our application, I think, right around the time I was, you know, having a baby. And then I had my son with me in a nightmarish day that was the, um, the interview process. And he was only six weeks old when we started. So which I, I wouldn't recommend. It's doable, but it was a, a very challenging time. Um, so we didn't take the decision to, to enter into YC lightly, just given our, our circumstances. We'd also closed quite a large deal for the company like the week before or something, but it did turn out to absolutely be the right move for us. I will say, I think the, the advice that you get going through the process, and I'm sure this has changed a little bit, but it's easier if you have a very straightforward business, I think, because they tend to give advice in very small like chunks of time, like you might have a 15 minute session or something. And we have quite a complex business model and it's, it's really kind of like a three sided market. And there, there are a lot of things that, that you need to understand in order to give really great and actionable advice for the business. So that piece was a little bit less useful for us. But what was has been really useful since is the advice that we've gotten from the partners and also just the YC network. I'm sure that everybody knows by now that there are some internal mailing lists and kind of forums that only Y Combinator founders are able to see and participate in. And those are incredibly valuable. You know, people talk about everything from hiring to compensation to which insurance companies you use to problems that they've run into with vendors. 
et cetera. So that's been hugely valuable for us. And I do think it gives you an extra little bit of, we call it pixie dust, but um, it makes it easier to hire. And, and if you want to raise money, uh, certainly to raise money. I particularly say that that's the case for companies that might have started overseas. Um, as most people know, it can be difficult to build the right relationships in Silicon Valley around uh, fundraising. And Y Combinator is a huge uh, help when it comes to that. That's awesome. It sounds like a great experience, although like a little rocky and, and challenging at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was great. It's just, it's very time consuming and it's not, it's not designed for people who have things other than the company to think about. Right. I mean, I was married, I had a baby. I, I was obviously working my tail off on Bitnami, just like everybody else's on their startup. But there are certain things that just limited what I physically was able to do. Um, it didn't help that I live in Walnut Creek and, and White Combinators in Mountain View, and I wasn't really in a position to to move my family since I had an infant. So um, that that's a little challenging, too. I mean, the less you have going on in your life besides Y Combinator, the more you're going to get out of it. Like, I, I did miss out on some things just because I couldn't be there as much as I would have liked to because of my son. For sure. But I guess it's all turned out for the best now. Yeah. Like I said, it was absolutely worth it. I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything. And, you know, from time to time, folks ask me for advice about Y Combinator, whether or not they should do it. And it's one of the best decisions we've ever made in the company's history was to go through Y Combinator. It really did help us to kind of refocus our business and get some clarity. We made some important strategic decisions uh, based on some of the advice that we got there. And, and it certainly helped with, with hiring and just building our networks in general. So given the industry that you're in, you know, strategic partnerships obviously play a pretty big role in, in, in your growth. So how did you or, or have you sort of approached creating and building uh, these partnerships with bigger companies like AWS or Google Cloud Platform or even VMware? So that's been a major focus for me in particular over the last several years. Um, I've headed up all of our business development and negotiated all of our contracts with those vendors. Uh, I recently started building out the team to do that and hired a great guy out of Verizon. So I'm I'm really happy about that because it is incredibly time consuming. And I swear I've almost earned a legal degree in the process because of how complex these uh, the contracts get. But I think there are a lot of different pieces of, of guidance and advice I could offer. I mean, one one thing I will say is in most cases, these vendors come to us in almost every case. You know, we work with AWS, Microsoft, uh, Oracle, Google, VMware, one and one GoDaddy, a ton of very large companies. And we've worked really hard over a very long period of time to establish ourselves as kind of the go-to company for delivering apps on any cloud platform. Um, we drive a tremendous amount of usage for these providers and can get them exposure to potential new customers. Um, and we also make sure that their platforms are usable and that there's content that people can consume on them. So um, we haven't done a whole lot of outbound business development. Now, that said, there's still a lot of time and energy that has to go into it. You know, after after a vendor comes to us, you know, the first thing that we typically do is we try to set some expectations around pricing just to make sure that we're not wasting our time. And with the, the bigger vendors, that's not usually an issue. But um, you can imagine we have a ton of, you know, much smaller vendors coming to us. And, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense usually from a financial perspective for either either side to engage. So 
we've learned to very early kind of qualify opportunities. And that's an important piece of advice I'd give to anyone who's who's running a startup. Um, you can get completely consumed by potential partnerships. You know, um, companies will come out of everywhere wanting to do business with you. And a lot of times you can end up wasting a lot of time and energy in something that's not really going to to propel your business forward. And I would say one like big red flag is if there's no money changing hands in a partnership um, or no guarantees, so people just want to do a rev share or something, um, very often that's not worth your time. And that's something that we figured out very early on and I think has helped us to grow um, as a business by staying focused on the right opportunities. Um, but the process is typically, you know, once we've established it, there's there's a there there, as, as some say. Um, then we do kind of a technical eval. Then we put together a proposal. And then that usually goes through several iterations before we move on to a contract phase. And how exactly you engage really varies quite a bit from company to company. In some cases, you know, there'll be kind of one champion who's driving our deals forward and they do most of the work for us and we're kind of shielded from a lot of it. And then other companies with very complex deals, you know, we might have to get buy-in from several different departments. You know, quite often there's kind of a go-to-market component of a contract and that might come out of a marketing budget. And then there might be an engineering piece that comes out of an engineering budget. So you need to get a lot of folks kind of thinking on the same page and convinced of your value in order to um, to make a deal move forward. Yeah, be prepared to spend a lot of time and energy and be patient. You know, there's some times where we've had people come to us and we'll have an initial call and talk about pricing and they're not ready yet. And then they come back, you know, six months or even a year later. I've, I've had some companies who talked to us for two years before they were really ready to do a deal. Um, and I think just knowing when when to kind of back off of a deal because it's not making progress is just as important as knowing when to push it forward. You know, we might be more sensitive to that at Bitnami because we're primarily bootstrapped. So it's not like we raised, you know, $20 million and I went out and hired 10 BD people to go work on these deals. You know, it was just me doing it for a long time. And, and my time is is precious given that I run a bunch of other functions in the company. And now, you know, I have a, a small great but small team working on it so when when you have limited resources you really have to be careful about where you invest them um, not sure if that answered your question or if you were hoping i'd go in a different direction with that no that was great that was i think there's a lot of value in in that answer and uh and and sort of the the advice you provided there maybe one one extra thing i might ask uh, uh just at the beginning you said you guys put a lot of effort into sort of building yourselves as the go-to brand how does that happen how, you know how do you create yourself how do you come in as a new company into uh you know a growing and, and new industry but um how do you kind of build up that reputation uh to, to become that go-to brand that's a great question. And I think, you know, we did it the slow way. So I'm sure that there are a lot of better ways to do it. And, and we're going to be doing even more work around that this year. But one thing was just delivering and being consistent. So, you know, we started out on Amazon and we put a ton of time and energy into making sure that our systems are completely automated. So when new updates are available, we're able to publish, you know, updated images very quickly. And when Heartbleed hit, for example, we rebuilt 50,000 AMIs in 36 hours. And I think just delivering and maintaining a quality product and having great and open conversations with users on, you know, our forums in our case, 
um, has been really helpful. We also worked on getting the word out by, you know, developing relationships with journalists. Um, we've never actually used a PR firm. I, I built all of our journalist relationships myself and reaching out to them and keeping them posted when we were working with a new cloud vendor and making sure that we were getting stories written up about that um, definitely helped. We try and do things like giving interviews or, or doing talks. Um, this year, you'll see a lot more kind of thought leadership content coming out from us around a wide variety of things. And I, I think, you know, there's no one magic bullet. It's all of these things over time help you to build a brand that that people trust, you know, you got to deliver a great product and stay on top of it and maintain it and be accessible to users and communicative when there's a problem. And then you just have to get the word out that you're doing that and make sure people know about it. I know this is a loaded question and it might be hard to kind of articulate a, an exact answer, but where do you see the cloud industry continuing to evolve? I think we're going to see a lot of movement towards kind of the, leveraging different services. So, you know, infrastructure as a service has been where things have been focused for quite a long time. They were obviously the first and I would call them the second uh, wave of past platforms that were too inflexible for people to really want to write many production apps to them. But I think we're now seeing kind of a third wave, if you will, of past where it's more about pulling different services together um, to construct an application. And, and those are things like database as a service off offerings and, and monitoring and logging and all this stuff that you can kind of like piece all these pieces together with your code in order to build a really scalable app. I think we're going to see a lot of that, which means that all the cloud vendors are going to have to continue innovating up the stack um, and adding more services. So they're not just making a bet on on infrastructure as a service offerings, which are very, very quickly becoming a commodity. And, you know, I've heard multiple vendors say, we just assume the price of the actual compute is going to go to zero, right? We have to find ways to add value on top of that. So I think we're going to continue to see that. I think we're going to continue to see consolidation. Um, you know, there are very few companies that have the kind of resources and scale that the Googles and Microsofts and Amazons of the world do. Um, and I know a lot of them are trying, but if, if they don't focus on like a very specific niche, um, I think they're really going to struggle. So I think we'll see a lot of, of continuing consolidation in that space. Though I do think some of the very large regional providers, say in India and China and other geographies, will be able to build very meaningful businesses there. Um, in particular because of the U.S.'s data laws and people not feeling comfortable about running applications on U.S. providers in some cases. Or, you know, I'm sure you've seen that various countries are legislating that the data has to reside in their, their countries, which opens up opportunities for local providers to build businesses there. Um, so I'd say those are kind of two of the biggest trends. The other thing that we'll definitely see, and, you know, it's already happening, so this isn't news, but is every cloud vendor is going to have a, a good container story. I think they have to. And that's kind of related to some of the services stuff I was talking about before as well and how people are building new applications to be cloud native. But I think we'll see a lot of product development in those areas and helping people to uh, be able to get up and running with really truly scalable applications on all the cloud vendors. Those are some really great insights on, on where you see the cloud industry uh, evolving to. So, so out of that, what's next for Bitnami? Yeah, so, um, you know, continuing on the containers vein, um, we do have an offering called Stacksmith that we launched into beta in uh, November, excuse me. 
And we're going to have a lot more coming around that product. Stacksmith essentially lets you kind of build your own Docker files out of Bitnami known good components and then notifies you when any of the pieces that you've built on goes out of date. So if there's a security issue or a new release or something, um, you can get notified via webhooks or, or even email and um, automatically rebuild your container and, and redeploy it. So I think there are a ton of opportunities in the container space. And, you know, if you think of Bitnami and what we do, we're really great at packaging and maintaining things and, and providing consistent environments that can be deployed everywhere. And we'll be doing the same thing for containers too. So there'll be a lot coming around that. We're also uh, releasing an enterprise offering later this year. So um, I can't go into too many details around that yet, but uh, we're essentially, you can think of it as packaging up everything that we've developed over really the last decade to provide people with a way to use our tooling to package up and deploy their own applications. If I can make one plug there really quickly, actually, um, because my recruiter would kill me if I didn't, we're hiring a ton of people. So we're hiring a bunch of folks in our San Francisco office, which is right in Soma, and also out of our office in Spain. And for some technical roles, we'll consider remote positions too. So if any of this sounds interesting, you know, one of the things that's next for us is continued growth. We expect to be closer to 100 people by the end of the year. So go to bitnami.com slash careers if you're interested. That's awesome. Can't wait to see what's next for you. So based on your experience in startups and tech, do you have any stories about challenges you had to overcome while building Bitnami? I found out way after the fact. I didn't know at the time, but I think being a woman in technology has led to some setbacks that weren't totally apparent. You know, like a year or two later, I'll find out through the grapevine that a particular company or person or, or investor, if we were looking at raising, wasn't interested in us and it had something to do with me being a woman. Um, it's not very apparent most of the time. And Quite frankly, I don't think about being a woman in technology all that often. I just think about being a person in tech and getting my job done. And, you know, the fact that I'm a woman is, is definitely secondary. But I would say that that's something that has that probably held us back a little bit. I think now, hopefully, we have enough kind of street cred and we've shown that we can execute well enough that it's less of an issue. But I do remember, I think it was like my 23rd birthday, maybe 24th birthday, and I was at this event for executives in open source, and there were probably like 50 people there. And I remember just having this moment where I was standing there and I looked around and I realized I was literally the only woman at the entire event. And most of the people there were like 20 years older than me. And it was just a very surreal, you know, how did I, how did I find myself here? How did I end up like running a tech company when I studied investment finance and have no one in my family who's in technology? But that was more surreal than funny, I suppose. The tech industry still has a long way to go in addressing issues like these and just encouraging women to get involved and do amazing things, which is why your story and experience is obviously so powerful and and hopefully inspirational to people listening. You know, you don't have to be an engineer to, to get involved in and launch a startup or be successful for that matter. So over the past few years, have you come across any helpful content on leadership or entrepreneurship, anything that stands out in particular or super inspirational to you? And, and these things can be a book, video or blog post. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, I don't have nearly as much time to read as I'd like, but um, this is a bit old news. But The Hard Thing About Hard Things is one of the best books I've read in a really long time. So I highly recommend that. Um, I also think Saster, the blog, has some really fantastic data. 
So I tend to, um, people send me the posts usually now, so I don't go out and read any blogs, but I, most of the great content that I see comes from there. Um, or Mattermark, I think, provides great, um, kind of great filtering of really relevant content. Um, and they have a free newsletter that summarizes the most important content from around the web. So I would say that um, those are kind of some of my favorite resources. And for tech-specific stories, I'm a pretty big fan of the new stack, which is fairly new. But I think they have some really good content there that's highly relevant to our space, at least on you know cloud and containers. Yeah, those are some great recommendations, and uh, we'll make sure that we link to those so that other people can check them out. So do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by and you think other people should know about? Um, I don't know if this is that exciting, but I'm very much of the JFDI persuasion. So, you know, to keep this safe for work, I'll say just freaking do it. But I... I really am the type of person who just likes to get things done. Like, I don't think about something being impossible. I think about how I can do it. And I just try to make it happen and, and try not to spend too much time overthinking things. I think it's easy, particularly when it, you're in an industry that's uh, moving quickly and, you know, has a lot of complexity to it to get into kind of analysis paralysis. Um, and I think you're much better off just picking a, a, an informed direction and going for it and adjusting course later rather than spending too much time trying to come up with the perfect solution because you may just be too late then. That's some great advice. Uh, Erica, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show with us today and, and sharing your, uh, your awesome story with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I hope it was useful for folks. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.